Hello, and welcome to From Her View. My name is Liz Warner, and here each week I'll be speaking to extraordinary women from around the world. You'll hear all about their personal story, how and why they said yes to a groundbreaking idea in their life. We'll also dive deep into a behind-the-scenes look at what it's actually like to live in fascinating but perhaps misunderstood places like Afghanistan, Cuba, Somalia, Iran, and Venezuela. I am inviting you to gain a deeper understanding of the far-reaching corners of the world from a different perspective. Hers. The media paints a very bleak picture of the garment industry in Bangladesh. Today, I'm talking to someone who made it a life mission to change this and create a new narrative around ethical fashion in her home country, Mahin Khan. To give a bit of context, Bangladesh is the second largest individual country in the world for apparel manufacturing, second only to China. The garment industry is the largest business in the country, and it has a history of disaster and mistreated underpaid workers, exemplified in the Rana Plaza garment factory collapse in April 2013, in which more than 1,000 garment workers lost their lives. Mahin broke the mold when in 2017 she founded a sustainable fashion startup called Monochrome, with the hope of offering Bangladeshi women in particular local fashion options that are tailored to their needs. This episode is chock full of wisdom about how to do intersectional work in fashion and the ways in which the industry has evolved to offer more opportunities to empower women. You'll hear all about Mahin's love for storytelling, why sustainability is so important in fashion, and the memories of moments in Dhaka that give her goosebumps. I hope you enjoy. So Mahin, thank you so much for coming on to From Her View. I'm really, really excited to have you as my guest today. Thank you for having me. So tell me a bit about your background. You were born and raised in Bangladesh, but you eventually studied and worked abroad. What made you eventually decide to return to Bangladesh? Well, it's a bit uh, complicated uh, because um, I didn't really plan on studying or well I did plan on studying abroad or working abroad but uh, what happened was I studied my bachelor's in Australia that was uh, almost more than two years 20 years ago sorry more than 10 years ago not 20 years <laughs> after which I returned to Dhaka simply because a I missed home and my family uh, and b I could not see myself living in one place for too long that was sort of my personality uh, from then on However, um, life happened and there was a bit of back and forth. I came, came back, I went back to Bangladesh after I graduated from my bachelor's, stayed there for three years, worked, and then I moved again to Sydney for personal reasons and I was working there for a little more than a year. Again, what happened was working in Sydney and, and my, I have family there, I have uh, my best friends live there. I just, I feel this itch to, like, this is not a place that I could stay on for longer. I really need to move. So I went back home and, uh, yeah, and then I started working at home again. And I think this this going back home sort of has been like a pattern in my life. It sort of jolts me up, you know, it jolts me up with uh, to pursue what I really, really want. So you returned to move back to Bangladesh and... Did you start eventually start your own business soon after returning? No. So the second, uh, so I moved back to Bangladesh twice from Australia. So once was in 2010, and then the second time was 2015. I had no intention absolutely to start my business or a business. I just I wanted to work. But when I moved back the second time in 2015, I started working for a company uh, that was a tech startup from Silicon Valley. And they were working to collect data from workers in the garment industry about worker relations, worker safety and working conditions in these factories. Obviously, because, you know, the event of Rana Plaza that happened in 2013, in which a factory building collapsed and more than a thousand workers had 
uh, passed away mm-hmm. and a lot more injured. So there was a lot of work going on and a lot of organizations and startups were initiating operations within the country to understand and to improve the situation. So that was that work. I was working as a country project manager and I was traveling across the country, engaging with workers, understanding the operational um, operational objectives of these factories and how they work. This is what propelled me basically to start something of my own uh, in combination with the fact that I have always been a lover of fashion from when I was quite young. Okay, this makes a lot of sense then. So you you really feel like those two years working for that tech startup and traveling across Bangladesh, really engaging with the, the garment factory workers, that sort of propelled you in this direction, eventually working in the fashion industry there. Yes, absolutely. Because I discovered that there was a lot of resources that were available in the country which were untapped. I mean, this was a country that had been in the industry achieving strides for four decades. And there was so much expertise, so much craftsmanship, which were yet to be tapped in a in a different way than the um, the RMD sector, which is the ready-made garment sector. So I saw an opportunity and I, I feel that I've always been a creative person and I love fashion and design and art. So I wanted to somehow combine all of this and build a, build a narrative for Bangladesh and the fashion industry. Wow. And, you know, I feel like especially also in the last 10 years, fashion consumers around the world have become considerably more informed and aware of the detrimental social and environmental effects of the fast fashion industry. And especially, obviously, with what happened um, after the Rana Plaza disaster, you know, I really shook the entire world and it really laid it on the table in front of everyone's eyes just how exploitative and life-threatening the garment industry can be, especially for the predominantly female workers. So I was curious to hear your thoughts on whether you feel like the industry is now changing for the better since this all happened as well. Yes, of course. The fashion industry has um, achieved great progress. And I must say that the garment industry in Bangladesh has also followed this progress, has also come up with solutions and uh, initiatives to address these issues that had led to the tragedy of Rana Plaza. And we also have to understand that all these crises that that arise, they are not in silos. They're all interconnected. There's a whole web of complications that are in place, which are, which are culminating into crisis. So we cannot only see, okay, it was Bangladesh, it was this one factory, it was this one tragedy. No, there has been uh, such incidents before in the country, in garment factories and elsewhere where garment factories operate there's a whole uh, history of relations between brands and and factories and workers the, the, the whole supply chain uh, was extremely fragmented and it still continues to be fragmented because when you talk about globalization and when you talk about supply chains they you don't know where it what is coming from and this leads to a lot of uh, issues that ultimately culminates into one single crisis. But us as spectators, the entire world only sees that event individually, obviously, because that is what is shown. That is what is reflected. Having said that, from that tragedy onwards, the industry has made a lot of um, progress in terms of whether it's the social impact or the environmental impact but I still think there's a lot more to be done. Absolutely. So your sustainable fashion startup called Monochrome, how, what role do you feel like your brand plays in supporting the, the slow fashion movement? Well, I think when I began Monochrome, uh, first of all, I, I, I resigned from my then job and I decided to go to a fashion school in Italy for the summer. I went to Polimoda in Florence to learn the technical aspects of fashion design because I felt I had the creativity of designing, but I needed to understand the technical elements. So I went to Polimoda 
And Polymora was very, very interesting. Immediately, there were synergies between me as a person and Polymora as a fashion institution. So when I was playing around with this idea of creating a brand, I was trying to, I'm a marketing and communications student, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and that's, that's what I specialize in. So I'm trying to think, okay, how can, how can it not be just another brand? Mm-hmm. What should be so special about it? And back then, uh, I didn't know much about sustainability, to be honest with you. I, I didn't know everything that I know today, four years later. So monochrome, what I did was, what I envisioned and what it ultimately did is monochrome did not cater to any trends. It catered to comfort, function, and sustainability in women's fashion and ultimately men's fashion, which came on later. Mm -hmm. Slow fashion contradicts fast fashion in the sense that it rejects trends so that you don't have like a lot of um, designs and fashions and styles coming every season, which is the way the fashion industry has been operating. I think that was how monochrome was contributing to slow fashion by providing clothes that were timeless and durable and also most importantly functional, you know, for especially for women in Bangladesh, women in Dhaka, because that was my primary uh, uh, target segment, working women in in Dhaka. But it is also important to understand that when we talk about Bangladesh, it is not correct to assume that fast fashion has taken over the entire country, as has been the situation in the West. Because majority of mainstream Bangladeshis still buy clothes during celebrations like Eid or weddings. And, you know, it would be a very interesting topic for research, you know, about fast fashion's influence on Bangladesh and a country like Bangladesh, which is the second largest exporter of um, ready-made garments. It is, uh, in fact, a very small fraction of the population who live in urban areas exposed to travel and the world who are often into this uh, frenzy of fast fashion and this was monochrome's audience and target customers i wanted women of all ages living in dhaka to opt for local design rather than go to neighboring countries and buy from fast fashion stores wow really interesting i actually didn't realize that your target audience was actually women in bangladesh or in dhaka initially that was the idea yes wow wow very very interesting and cool And what was your overall experience founding a fashion startup business in Dhaka? Did you experience any big hurdles along the way, just getting it going? And and how did you eventually overcome them? Well, overall, the experience has been bittersweet, but mostly sweet. Okay. Um, But, you know, however, if you want to initiate a startup anywhere, Dhaka is absolutely brilliant because it provides access to resources if you know how to get around that is and you will know how to get around if you you know if you're curious enough you know yes yes um everyone's experience is different of course and i am quite fortunate because i had working experience in the past in in dhaka and i also like i told you i went to fashion school but um i think when you start your own business the main challenge is always yourself. You have to overcome your mindset and your fear of failure. And in terms of hurdles, my God, there were so many. I mean, there were days I just didn't want to wake up because I was so scared. I was so scared because I was responsible for the people who were working for my company. You know, there I had, I every day I woke up in the morning and I thought, okay, they they depend on me. I have to provide, I have to be good at what I do because they are earning to send the children to school, you know, put food on the table. So I had to constantly think of that. But if I was to, you know, really list the things, then it would be like starting from sourcing raw materials locally, working with a showroom in New York, behind which I spent tons of money and it did not work out, having to say no to an order from a global retailer, a very big one, because I was not happy with the contractual terms and conditions, and collaboration challenges. Because Monochrome was a small startup, people were not willing to collaborate with a small company. Right. And I think the biggest one was definitely sourcing raw materials locally because I was... I, I had I was pursuing a circular design economy. 
Wow. And do you feel like coming out of that really all of those those difficulties, do you feel like you reached a point where you're like, okay, you know, I'm not necessarily coasting, but I reached this point where um, everything feels a little bit more on track and balanced. Um, do you feel like you ever, ever reached that point after starting your business? I did. I did because of I was extremely determined and I, I achieved, well, I overcame those hurdles through collaborations. And that was my biggest lesson from running Monochrome is that you cannot work alone. You have to find people who creatively and intellectually connect with you, creatively because you have to come up with innovative processes and intellectually because you have to have a vision that is greater than yourself. Yes, And that is, I think, how... Um, as a, as a brand, as a team, as a family, which is monochrome, which was monochrome the last a few years, uh, overcame its hurdles because of that collaborative um, team working and, you know, sort of a community gathering of ideas. Absolutely. And um, now, I guess several years after starting monochrome, are you surprised by any particular aspect of the fashion industry as a whole or sort of really, you know, becoming acquainted of, acquainted with all the difficulties involved with working in the fashion industry? Well, like I mentioned before, I think the fashion industry has had much progress, uh, especially mm -hmm. in recent years. And, you know, being responsible overall, whether it's socially or environmentally. Um, what I do like though, and which is what I absolutely love about fashion in the 21st century, is or in general, 21st century, yes, but also fashion in general, is that the state of the world is constantly reflected in how we dress ourselves. We don't consciously know this, but we do it. Mm -hmm. And as we strive to remove barriers, achieve solidarity, and address colonial past racial supremacy, and gender injustices, we are aiming to bridge the gaps and get rid of man-made divisions. And fashion was no different. In the past, it was highly top-down, with the biggest designers and social elites dictating what is in and what is out. I'm pretty sure you remember uh, fashion magazines saying, this is in, this is yes. out, you know? <laughs> remember those? Yes. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> But um, if you see today, that is no longer the norm and you can wear whatever you want and be who you want to be. What is in right now is the freedom to be yourself and express yourself. And especially this is very important for women. And that was what monochrome was for me. It was how I expressed my idea of the world. However, having said that, it is there's still so much work to be done and it is not true for everyone or every woman. And I'm fortunate to, fortunate to say this, that I can express myself in whichever way I want to. But we still, still see powerful men expressing their so-called liberal or conservative political agenda by dictating how women should dress, even till today. And it seems that it is very important to pass laws on to cover or not to cover on the political agenda. So this is what surprises me, you know? that the fashion industry is yet to advocate and engage more politically and, you know, be more provocative in terms of what fashion is. It is political at the end of the day. Everything is. So being a bit more out there, I think. Yes. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. And so you mentioned before that you come from a pretty strong communication background. So I was curious to hear, you know, the fact that each monochrome garment is designed and produced in Bangladesh. Do you weave mm -hmm. this into the, into the monochrome's storytelling or brand storytelling? Um, how do you sort of uh, communicate the fact that, you know, your garment was not just produced in China? You know, there's a really, there's a strong story behind each piece. Well, I think that was the entire story of monochrome, you know, from the very first stitch to the last. That was the only story that monochrome was a local Bangladeshi story with dreams to make it big on the international stage. And the brand wanted to walk the talk. 
And I'm a storyteller. I love telling stories. I ever since I was a little girl, I always would ask before I went to sleep, tell me a story. Even even till date, I ask my husband to tell me a story when I go to sleep. And it was for for me it was very important to tell a story whether it was through words or through images. And the photo shoots that we did was I always had a story. I always had this vision of a story that I would communicate to the photographer or the model so that they are part of that story. And the name of each collection was based on a story. For example, the first name, the first collection was called Identity. And this was because I was trying to carve out a niche for monochrome and to build an identity. And for myself as well, because when I was in school, I was bullied. And uh, for years and for a very long time, I struggled with my own identity. I struggled with who I am. And monochrome was that for me. It was an expression because through my clothes, through my creative ideas, I expressed myself. So I constantly told the story of monochrome's pieces. I, I, I had a blog on the website where I would talk about monochrome's uh, activities, what it was doing, what it was not doing. It, and then each piece had a story behind it. For example, I took a lot of inspiration from Japanese architecture, mythology, and philosophy. And um, a lot of the pieces in the first collection were named after some of, some of the mythological characters, not only from Japan, but also in Bangladesh. Uh, in Bangladesh, we have the Shundarbans, which is the mangrove forest, and it is being devastated because of climate change and also human-made activities. And we have this mythical character called Bon Bibi, who is the protector of the uh, of the mangrove forest. And there was an outfit that there was. I designed this um, this this particular piece that was an ode to her. So there was many stories that were coming in while I was weaving the story. But the most important thing was we are making this here and we are designing this here. And everything that is in me and in my country is represented through the clothes. So that's that was the storytelling process. You know, there were a lot of characters. There were a lot of ideas, visuals. Yeah. Wow, it's beautiful. And, you know, I think it's it's still surprising how few brands actually put so much emphasis, you know, in the storytelling. So, um, you know, I think that's definitely an aspect that, that makes Monochrome so unique. And um, so you've now decided, of course, no, I'm, I, I personally love the collection. I feel like it's super minimalist. I guess you want to tell the viewers, I guess, how would you even describe um, Monochrome, just even like the current collection or the last collection? I, oh, I wouldn't describe it. I would leave it open to interpretation. I think, okay. yes, I think it to each person it's different. And I think when I give a predefined um, description, then it kind of loses the whole idea of of identity, you know, of being who it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I I also very much respect that. And I, I think it's, um, yeah, it's a nice way to to be able to leave it up to the imagination of, um, of uh, mm -hmm. the people checking it out. So yeah. now as well, you've decided to temporarily pause your work at Monochrome. You're currently pursuing a master's in sustainable science and policy. So I wanted to ask, you know, this is a hard decision to make and what are you hoping to get out of your current master's? Well, it was a very difficult decision and it was a very personal one. And I think it is very much who I am. It's part of my personality. I often, um, I like to dabble into things. I like to try out different things. That's because I feel that I need to learn more. 
And uh, like I told you, when I started Monochrome, I did not have any idea about sustainability, about, I mean, I had some idea because of what I was being exposed to about the environment, but I wasn't, you know, very well rehearsed, one might say. So as I was working with Monochrome and especially developing the circular business model and the circular design model, I learned a lot about the environment, the natural environment, I mean, um, sustainable development, waste, and what it does and how it impacts the climate. So I thought that, okay, I need to know more. I know some things and I know a little, but I need to know more. So I wanted to learn more about natural environment and, and sustainable development as well. And that combined with my passion for always moving from place to place, um, that's why I decided, no, it was time to uh, hit the pause button on this um, initiative. And because I like moving, I thought, okay, I need to go to a country that is different from me culturally, linguistically, because all of that teaches me about myself as well as the world around me. And then I apply all those lessons to my work, no matter what I do, whether I run a business or whether I work for an organization or if when, or I just write stories. Yes. So yes, that was basically the idea. And to be honest with you, I don't really think that much about why I do what I do. I just do. <laughs> yes, which I love. And I feel like sometimes you just need that you know, spontaneity and, and in a way like naivete also to just jump into some, some crazy, um, you know, next endeavor or adventure and, and see what comes out of it. And that's how you personally grow as well. Yes, absolutely. It takes a lot of courage and yes. a yes. lot of sacrifices as well. Yeah. Because, you know, I left in August last year, I haven't seen my family since then. So it's difficult and, you know, you just, the choices you make are not always easy, even if you get what you want. Of course. And do you plan to, after your master's, to, you know, resuming the operations of monochrome? Or are you kind of leaving that open to see what other opportunities come up after after you finish your, your master's? I am yet to really pinpoint what I would like to do. But mm -hmm. monochrome is going to be there. I am hoping to come back to it with a more grand vision. Um, and in, in terms of grand vision, I don't mean um, grandeur in the sense of like gloss and all of that, but something that is even more effective, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, But after my master's, I would really like to learn a bit more about um, about how the work in, in this sector of, cause I'm very, very passionate about climate justice mm -hmm. because it is, I mean, I, I, it's intersectional and, uh, you cannot talk about climate justice without addressing all the other injustices that are prevalent in society and in the world today. So everything sort of, you know, is interconnected and cross cuts. So we have to understand that. And for me, doing something in fashion, like I told you before, is not in silo. It, it very much intersects with everything, be it politically, economically, socially, and all of this needs to be integrated in what I do. So um, I would like to get back to monochrome in the future, uh, when I have the audacity and the courage to make it truly what it is meant to be. And it's still in my head and hopefully attract a lot of investment as well. <laughs> um, it's very important, but you know, it was, it was funny because I closed monochrome right when it was gaining a lot of international recognition. Wow. Wow. Uh, because I closed it right after we were on the European, uh, you know, fashion show in Brussels. Uh, Monochrome was invited to present its circular design uh, collection uh, in Brussels in 2019 and to talk about sustainable fashion in Bangladesh. So that was the highlight of Monochrome. And two months later, I, I decided to close it down. <laughs> but I no doubt, I mean, 
the hype will still be there. I mean, it's even how I, I found your story. Maheen was just, you know, really trying to research a, a very interesting, sustainable fashion brand that was based in Bangladesh. And I, I mean, I know that there are others out there, but but your brand really stood out to me. So I have, I have no doubt that when you do decide to to come back in the arena, that um, the attention will absolutely still be there. Um, Thank you. I wanted to shift now because I also read that over the last year, you coordinated a project called Voices from the Frontline. Um, again, going back to your incredible storytelling skills, where in this project um, you documented uh, you know, s- certain experiences of, of people around the world and how they were um, dealing with the pandemic crisis in their own way. I would love to hear more about how you started this project, um, sort of what the outcome has been um, since launching it. Ah, I see you've done your research. <laughs> I mean, it was, I, mean, I it, you know, and I think, you know, over the past year, COVID-19 is, I mean, it's been a wild year for all of us, but I think to really um, jump on the present and, and again, try to bring to light so many stories. Um, mm-hmm. It's, um, it's again, a courageous thing to do because I think, you know, just even um, having to deal with our own issues, our own personal issues is a lot to handle. So again, to sort of pass the mic and try to elevate stories of other people who are struggling um, in their own way too is, is um, yeah, it's, it's a really incredible initiative. So I'd love to hear more, uh, more about it. Well, um, it's an interesting story because uh, when I closed down Monochrome, I started to apply to universities in the UK and the university in Netherlands that I I am currently admitted in, Maastricht University, uh, was something that I came across during a project meeting because I started an internship while still operating Monochrome towards its end at uh, a research organization based in Bangladesh called ICAD, which is International um, Climate, it's a climate change organization. And uh, I was, I'm, I admire uh, the director who is Dr. Sully Mulhawk. He's also one of the most influential personalities when it comes to climate change in the world. And I wanted to learn more before I embarked upon this journey. So I had completed the internship and I was still working uh, with them when uh, COVID-19 broke out and I was in Dhaka and I was by myself living in my apartment and my colleagues, my senior colleagues who were so wonderful, um, asked me if I would like to be part of this project. And I immediately said yes, because I really, I mean, there was this crisis ongoing and I've always somehow worked during crisis whether it was Rana Plaza I had a social foundation back then with a friend of mine we co-founded a social foundation called Red Blood we were trying to um, combine forces and and on how to respond effectively to national disasters so we worked during uh, this other event that happened in 2012 where a Buddhist community in the country was attacked. So we did the same thing. So I always sort of had this uh, immediate response uh, during crisis. So um, I jumped uh, at the opportunity and um, I started working on this fabulous project. And it was about documenting, learning and sharing stories of community resilience during the COVID-19 crisis. And I was, I was so fortunate because I was interacting with communities, remote, vulnerable communities from all around the world, uh, primarily focusing on the global south. So in Africa, Asia, South America. So I was working with people in Congo during armed conflict. I was talking to this person. He was in the middle of it and he was giving me information about how people are not only dealing with the COVID-19 crisis, but also displacement because this armed conflict just broke out. And then I was talking to people in in, in Fiji, in Solomon Islands, in, 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 the, in the slums in Taravi, in Mumbai. As well as I was talking in in Bangladesh city in Dhaka, I was talking to um, 
activists, transgender activists, and women who were working for their communities. It was it was absolutely. I think it changed me as a person. Writing these stories. Well, I was I wasn't writing this this these stories. I was co-writing these stories with the people and the researchers and the uh, community. Uh, community members in these areas. I was a co-editor and I wrote two pieces and the others I was co-writing and co-editing. And we were trying to co-produce knowledge uh, on how self-organized practices are, you know, they translate into resilience, how people in communities with so little resources with and so much vulnerability to crisis, how do they deal with this? And how can we learn from this to mobilize support, to mobilize uh, knowledge? So that was, that was something that really, really changed the way I perceive the world today because I understand a lot about power relations. I understand a lot about the compounding effects of a crisis and about, you know, like I said, um, gender relations and injustices. So the biggest crisis that we are going to be facing in the future is the climate crisis. And it's going to have very, very, um, not equal, but even more impact on, on such communities. So telling their stories, bringing their stories on the front is basically what I'm really passionate about right now and what I would like to pursue as well. And it's an ongoing project as well, correct? The project just ended. I uh, was working, uh, I started coordinating it last uh, June and then I had to step away in uh, October because of my commitment to my master's program. And then a wonderful colleague of mine who was working with me on the project, Shireen, she then took over. And uh, yes, and it, it successfully ended. And there are a lot of stories. And I really think these stories should be amplified. And, and it is in the process of amplification. And hopefully the legacy of this project will carry on because there are multiple projects right now uh, globally that are taking place, which are very similar to that one. Perfect. And I mean, I'll put this in the show notes as well, but where can we read about these stories or find these stories online? It is, I will send you a link. It is on the website of ECAD, uh, as well as some other organization. I can send you the links and they can always find it there. Great, great, great. So now I wanted to shift the conversation and ask about your personal experience spending a large part of your life in Bangladesh. So firstly, what's a common myth or stereotype about Bangladesh and how does it compare to your lived experience? Well, you know, this is an interesting question because whenever someone asks me this, I tend to ask them <laughs> what they think about Bangladesh. So I will ask you, Liz, what do you think about, what is your perception about Bangladesh? You know, I have been, for years now, I've been dying to travel to Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to be completely honest. I don't know too much about the country itself. Like, I actually don't have any you know, stereotypes about the country. Um, I mean, obviously, I think I also followed the Rana Plaza incident very closely. And, um, you know, I um, follow a lot of news sources that, that talk about the fashion industry. So I think um, not necessarily at that when I, Bangladesh comes to mind when I think of fast fashion, but I definitely kind of associate that incident with, with, um, with the country. But um but yeah, I mean, I actually, I would imagine that it's, it's. I sort of imagine it to be really green and lush and beautiful place. Dhaka itself is very, um, a concentrated city, very dense. There's a lot going on. Um, I've been to India before, so I'm sure there are some similarities, although they're mm-hmm. very different countries. So I, you know, that's sort of how I would um, imagine it to be if, when I do travel there. But um but yeah, I mean, again, I just would love to hear, um, you know, the, the sort of subtle um, differences, I guess, you know, if you had to compare Bangladesh to, to <laughs> other neighboring countries, for example, too. 
Well, all that you've said is true. <laughs> really? <laughs> because, and they did happen. But when mm-hmm. I was younger, I'll tell you something very interesting. So more than two years, 20, uh, 10 years ago, I keep saying two and 20 for some reason. Uh, when I went to Australia to study, very few people uh, knew about Bangladesh the way they know about Bangladesh today in 2021. And that was 2007. Mm-hmm. And uh, the main thing I got, and if I think as a researcher, it was that floods, mm-hmm. you know, floods. Yes. And um, well, floods happen because we are on the coastline and because of climate change. So now we have a lot of scientific <laughs> uh, explanations for all of that. So it's not like the it has some kind of... Um, affiliation or some kind of I don't know attraction towards uh, having floods but you know water security is a real problem and Bangladesh is very vulnerable to it Mm -hmm. but um, how is it different I I think we have we have very interesting people Mm -hmm. and and I think Bangladeshi people are genuinely some of the most honest hardworking and content people I've ever met. Mm. And I find that incredible. And I think that's one of the things that pull me back over and over again is this, I get so inspired by people in Bangladesh from my own country. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm doing a research currently for my master's thesis, which is on youth movements uh, on climate justice. And I'm talking to these young activists from the coastal region of Bangladesh Mm -hmm. and just talking to them and you know the way they are bringing in change the way they're influencing policies Mm -hmm. you know I get goosebumps and I I remember I was young once and I was also working you know in in with volunteers and I was also working in such movements but when I talk to them, obviously there is solidarity, but there's also this inspiration that strikes me every time. So that is one thing. I think Bangladeshi people just are very, very kind. They're very welcoming. And if you ever travel there, you'll see everybody wanting to help you. Uh, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is food. I think Bengali food don't get enough credit because I okay. think a lot of people think that it's uh, it's like Indian food, but it's not. Um, it's it's quite different. Yes, we all we use spices, and it's similar, but mm-hmm. it is quite different. You know, the our our uh, cuisine, Bengali cuisine, and our love for portas, which is a mashed vegetables with mustard oil and lots of chili. Sounds delicious. So I, it is. It is. I I, I cooked uh, Bengali food for my friends here, and uh, and I, I I did it vegan because most of my friends are here are vegan and vegetarians, uh, with no meat, and it was very much doable because Bengalis literally eat a lot of rice, lentils, which is which is what we call dal, bhortas, um, which are usually made from mostly made from vegetable. And then some lime, you know, and that's all you need. Uh, you've got a fantastic meal right there. So I think the, the Bengali food is very underrated and needs to be there on the global platform. <laughs> yes, I don't think I've ever eaten Bengali food. And I'm, I'm mad about that. Like, I'm very curious. It sounds amazing. Um, and maybe that, right? you know... I feel like all these different food trends kind of pop up. So hopefully Bengali food will have its moment soon. Um, Yes, that would be great. (laughs) Yeah. And is there any experience, feeling, or emotional memory that you can think of that really makes Dhaka or Bangladesh feel home to you or sort of bring you back to kind of that give you that really warm feeling? Like if there's any kind of really um, personal memory, memory attached to it. Well, first of all, uh, for me, home is a very strange subject. Mm-hmm. Um, as I'm still trying to understand it, and because I told you that I go from one place to another, and, you know, I have this thing for wonder. I like traveling. I like living in different places. And I often feel that I leave home behind and then go off somewhere, and then I don't know what home is. 
mm-hmm. and often they're associated with some kind of personal um, events. So I'm still trying to understand the concept of home that identifies with me as an individual. But uh, with what you've said about an experience or uh, feeling or emotional memory, there's this, when you exit the airport in Dhaka after landing, mm-hmm. after landing from whenever, wherever, whenever, wherever you come from. So you land in Dhaka and you exit the airport doors. There's a whiff of scent that I can feel and not smell, you know, I feel the scent. And mm-hmm. as I talk to you, right now from the netherlands i can mm-hmm. feel it mm-hmm. and as as that scent enters your nostrils it shoots up to your brain and then it gives me that feeling of home one one concept of home and since i was 18 and i left home um i always get that feeling that 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 warmth that that there's this, it's mixed with humidity and it's mixed with love and it mixed with um I don't know, the greenness of the country and the rivers of the country and I don't know, everything. So I, I, there's this, we, we Bengalis, we associate a lot of things with our national culture. For example, tea, mm-hmm. then boats, rivers, folk music, you know. So all of these things combined together, I think that scent combines all of these together, you know, <laughs> gives you that feeling. I love that so much because, yeah, for me too, it's, um, there's this one, I mean, I'm currently based in Paris too, and there's this one um, bakery that's right next door to me. And I feel like, you know, if I'm gone for a prolonged period of time when I come back and there's just this whiff of whatever they're baking, but it also just kind of brings me back to this place. Like, okay, I'm I'm back home. And I very much associate smell with home as well. Um, Yeah, it's the strongest memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as, you know, you're extremely accomplished with all of the different um, initiatives that you've launched and and now you're pursuing a master's and, you know, this required, like you said, just so much courage and and risk-taking. So I ask these final two questions to all of my guests. What has been the best advice you have ever received? I am actually very lucky and fortunate because I have had crossed paths with some unbelievably incredible individuals in my life. And I have received a lot of advice over the years. And I think the best advice is one that I gave to myself uh, many years ago. And I repeat that to myself every day when I wake up in the morning. And that is, don't become a victim of your circumstance and don't let any setback, any person or anything else that is not you define your life. So I think that's the best advice. But I gave that to myself. I hope that still applies to your question. (laughs) Of course, that's beautiful. I I love that. And it's, it's something, you know, I needed that. I needed to be told that today, actually. Um, and I think it's good to, um, to constantly remind yourself of that, too. And um, final question. So how do you seek to support other women in Bangladesh and, and also around the world? You know, I am still learning to do that. I'm still learning how I can support women more because there's just so much history and there's so much that women has been through. It is in our it is in our evolutionary memory as women, the kind of oppression and patriarchy that we had been subjected to from the very beginning. But whenever I ask myself this question and I try to consciously do something about this, is I I can start with being kind and being understanding, you know? I think whether I understand or not, I can still be kind. And there are some things that I try to practice, which are, for example, by not judging women and the choices that they make. And finally, I think by being as true to myself as I can be as a woman and hope that helps other women as well. 
and uh, most importantly, creating a safe space for women where they do not feel othered. And that safe space is me. It's not a physical space. It's just me as a person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I love that. And I mean, it's also just such a, you know, I think when I ask that question, I, I love for each of my guests to interpret it in their own way, but to really refine that message and bring it, you know, down to just simply be kind to each other and, and sort of to create this, this space where we can all be vulnerable together. And, you know, that there are so many shared experiences, even though, you know, we might come from so many different backgrounds, but just again, creating the safe space um, to be vulnerable and, and, um, and uplift each other as much as we can. Exactly. One more thing I wanted to tell you about the feeling, the emotional memory is I had this, I suddenly remember this another thing that's my mother's cooking Mm -hmm. and my dad talking politics. I think, yeah, that's my memory of home. (laughs) As well too. I love that. It's very like specific circumstance. Um, That's so wonderful. (laughs) I love it. Well, Maheen, thank you so much for coming on again today. It's been such a beautiful conversation. And um, yeah, I'm just really grateful for your time. Thank you so much, Liz, for having me. And I really had fun talking to you. And I hope um, that everything goes well for you. I really like what you're doing with this podcast and what you've done with your initiative in the past. And I wish you all the best going forward and hope we can keep in touch. Yes, absolutely. You too. Best of luck as well in your master's. Thank you. That's the show for today. As always, I am so appreciative of your time listening to these incredible stories. It would mean the absolute world to me if you shared this podcast with friends or left a review wherever you stream your podcasts. This will only mean that these stories will be amplified even louder to the rest of the world. Stay tuned for the release of next week's episode featuring a Yemeni's mission to ignite a feminist movement across Yemen from her view.